0: Once again, brethren, let's seek the Lord's help as we come into this hour together. Let us pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that we read nothing in your word to discourage us from coming to you again and again and again when we come with a sincere desire to seek your help. We know that you scathingly condemn those who merely draw near with the lips while their hearts are far from you. But we seek even in these moments before the throne of grace to have our hearts engaged as we acknowledge that it is not in man that walks to direct his steps and that apart from your grace We can accomplish nothing of any spiritual good. So we come asking once more that out of the fullness of grace that is in our Lord Jesus, you would give us every needed dimension of grace in this hour. Help your servant, help these my brothers, that together we may be conscious of the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit among us. We ask these mercies believing that they are mercies purchased for us by the death of your son and so we ask them of you in his worthy name amen amen, amen. amen. Well brethren we continue to address ourselves to the vital subject of the act of preaching itself And thus far, we've considered those elements of effective preaching as they relate to the preacher's present relationship to God as he preaches, the preacher in relationship to himself, his appearance and bearing, his emotional constitution and activity, and then in the use of his vocal powers. In this lecture and it may possibly break down into two lectures, we will consider the preacher's relationship to himself in terms of his physical action in preaching. Under this heading, we'll address such issues as gestures, posture, movement, and other aspects of physical animation as they apply to the act of preaching, even to the look of the preacher's eye, and the expression upon his face as he preaches. We will cover this subject under three main headings. First of all, the legitimacy and function of physical action in preaching. Secondly, the diversity and variety of legitimate physical action in preaching. And thirdly, some guiding principles concerning our physical action in preaching. And as we take up this subject, we'll once again confront one of the central axioms of this entire course in pastoral theology. And that axiom is that there is no conflict between nature and grace, or stated another way, what God has given us in general and special revelation are perfectly compatible revelations of his mind and will for us. Or to state it in yet another way, there is to be no conflict between what we are as men and what we are as preachers. So then we take up our first heading, The Legitimacy and Function of Physical Action in Preaching. The Bible everywhere assumes and not infrequently describes the relationship which naturally exists between thought and physical states or actions consistent with or expressive of that thought. Consider some of the scriptural testimony. We go all the way back to Genesis 4 and the incident of Cain and Abel. And picking up the reading at verse 4 we read and Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of his fat thereof and the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect and Cain was very angry and his countenance fell And the Lord said unto Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? The disposition of anger in the heart of this man found a very obvious expression in his face, that intimate and natural relationship between the state of the heart and the physiology of this man. And then the well-known incident in Second Samuel chapter 6 and verses 12 to 16. You remember the situation. The ark is being restored. David is bringing up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David. And we read in Second Samuel 6 and verse 13. And it was so that when they had borne the ark of the Lord six paces... He sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was girded with a linen ephod. David danced with all his might. Here it's equally plain that the muscles that move the entire body so that it may dance were influenced by the sheer joy of the occasion. David's dancing feet were rooted in the dancing heart of his delight in God. And then that notable incident that many of us first encountered in Sunday school in Daniel 5 verses 1 to 7 when Belshazzar is having his feast and the handwriting appears on the wall, We read in that section that once that handwriting appeared, verse 6, the king's countenance was changed in him, and his thoughts troubled him, and the joints of his loins were loosed, and his knees smote one against another. A very graphic description of the intimate relationship between the state of the mind and the emotions and their appropriate physical action. And then I've listed another a number of other scriptures. I don't need to turn to them, but they are just several of many throughout the scriptures clearly indicating this intimate relationship between thought, emotional state, and physical expressions of it. Any unprejudiced reader of these various passages cannot help but see that there is an intimate relationship between certain physical actions and the state of mind and soul which produces those actions. There is a natural and a compatible relationship between the two things. Any unprejudiced observer of human behavior must acknowledge that this intimate relationship between physical action and the state of the mind and soul in the person who expresses that action is simply a fundamental reality of normal human behavior. And the older writers again were careful to record this observation and I have listed in the next part of your notes four such quotes I'll only use two of them. If two or three witnesses could put a man to death under the old covenant, I hope just two or three witnesses where I've listed many others will be sufficient to persuade you that this has been the universal observation of the people of God. First of all, we listen to Blakey. The simple general rule which we are concerned to press in reference to manner in the pulpit is be natural. Feel what you say and say what you feel and in saying it, say it as you feel and let the feeling mold your voice, your gesture and your countenance in the natural way. Simple though this advice is, it's not very easy. To some persons, the most difficult thing in the world is to be natural. You Think about that. Most difficult thing in the world is to be natural. The model of a perfectly natural manner is to be found, some would say, rather low down in a little child who has not observed the perfect grace, freedom, naturalness of a little child's whole manner. Its tones of voice are exactly adapted to the nature of its remark. Its eye and its face are a perfect mirror of its heart. The movement of its arms, the gestures of his whole body is free and unrestrained. If one would attain a good manner in the pulpit, one must, in a sense, become a little child. If reasons be sought for the faultlessness of a child's manner, they are to be found in its guilelessness and reality, the transparency of its whole nature and its freedom from acquired habits in the elasticity and vigor of its muscular system and, last not least, its want of self Consciousness. Watch little children and see the perfect congruity between thought and emotions, words and gestures. And then, quoting uh, from Broadus, the term action is now commonly restricted to what Cicero called sermo corporis, or speech of the body, including expressions of countenance, posture and gesture, but not including the use of the voice. The freedom and variety of action exhibited by children when talking to each other shows that it is perfectly natural. Its wonderful expressiveness, even apart from language, is sometimes displayed by the deaf and dumb and by others skilled in pantomime. There's a familiar story of a dispute between Cicero and Roscius, an actor famous for pantomime, as to which could express a thought more eloquently, the one by words or the other by signs. In many cases, a gesture is much more expressive than any number of words. How truly language must be regarded as a hindrance to thought, though the necessary instrument of it we shall clearly perceive on remembering the comparative force with which simple ideas are communicated by signs. To say, leave the room, is less expressive than to point at the door. I look at Len and I say, it's a little more forceful than just saying, Len, leave the room. It's saying, Len, leave this room. Len, carries our judgment. Placing a finger on the lips is more forcible than whispering, do not speak. Marty, shut up. Keep your mouth, keep your yap closed. So you can go through that quote and see. And I think your own consciousness would say, amen, that's true. No phrase can convey the idea of surprise so vividly as opening the eyes and raising the eyebrows. Illustrations of this intimate relationship between thought and gesture. Much of these that Broadus identifies obviously very much within the range of our common experience. Therefore, as physical action is a vital part of effective, natural, oral communication among all but the blind... We should expect that the all-wise God who has given a supremacy of importance to the oral communication of his word would incorporate and not negate this basic reality in communicating his truth through human vessels. If truth and clarity should characterize our words in preaching, so likewise naturalness... Forcefulness and interest should characterize our physical action in preaching. He who would ignore this aspect of preaching sets up a dangerous theological structure, one in which he establishes a conflict between nature and grace. He who would ignore this aspect of preaching will generally do so to the impairment of his own Optimum usefulness. Then we move in the second place to consider the diversity and variety of legitimate physical action in preaching. Any treatment of this subject which aims at laying down specific rules which would result in detailed regulatory guidelines is doomed to fail at the outset. It's like the bathrobe that is a one-size-fits-all. Don't believe it. I think they took a little Vietnamese man for a model who was 5'6 and 140 pounds, and they made it fit him. But some guy that's 6 feet and 190 pounds doesn't fit. Doesn't fit. fit One-size-doesn't-fit-all. Never did, never will, never can. And likewise, if you try to set down ironclad rules, God's put us all together differently. In our mother's womb, he started it. And then in our development and in our education and in our cultural uh, absorbing of cultural issues with respect to this matter of physical action in preaching, ironclad rules, one size fits all, simply will not work or if you make them work, then you're having nature and grace collide because those are elements of my natural identity. And grace will refine them. Grace will augment what is good in them, help me to subdue what is not so good, but it's not going to fundamentally change my identity as a man. (coughs) The broad factors relative to cultural habits and mores, national temperament, and other factors render certain actions perfectly acceptable in one setting, but quite unacceptable in another. Furthermore, the differences in the essential personality, physical stature, native energy and essential natural temperament in each individual preacher within a given cultural framework must be given full liberty of expression. My Hispanic brethren, by and large, are more intense, emotionally volatile, and physically expressive. But among my Hispanic brethren, each one has his own identity. You can't say, oh, look at that, that's a Spanish preacher as though there's some monolithic, strict framework of expression. So we've got to recognize this, that there is this diversity and variety of legitimate physical action in preaching. And in the quote that I've given you from Spurgeon, he wonderfully identifies that in detail. I commend that to you, quotes number fifty-three. And 54, I'll not take the time uh, to read them. Spurgeon is simply amplifying what I have already suggested with respect to this diversity. Now then we come in the third place to some guiding principles concerning physical action in preaching. And the two overarching texts that should regulate our thinking and our practice are... 1 Corinthians 14:26 and Galatians 5:23 are constant companions. Let all things be done unto edifying, including including my physical action in preaching. At the point where my physical action ceases to be ceases to be a handmaid to edification, I have got to change it or re- Strain it, refine it. If it is not contributing to edification, it doesn't belong in my preaching. And then Galatians 5.23, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And if when I speak naturally, I'm sort of a wound up a little energizer battery windmill and that's distracting, I have got to learn how to hold on to the side of the pulpit at some points in my sermon, lest my windmill actions like the little energizer bunny become a distraction to others. And I am to exercise self-control. Now then, within the framework of those two texts, what are the general guidelines I would set before you? Well, perhaps no principle is more crucial in this area of discussion than the simple directive, forget yourself and be yourself. Behind this simple advice is the ideal that we ought to seek and it's one in which the man of God is so totally absorbed in delivering his message that no conscious thought is ever given to any physical action whatsoever. With a mind and a heart impregnated with God's truth and with a spirit passionately desirous of doing his hearer's good, the preacher can then simply allow all those internal passions of his mind and heart to cut whatever channels they naturally cut in his preaching. Once again, the old masters have much to teach us in this area. Listen to Alexander who says, under the little paragraph, animation, "...every man may be said to have his quantum of animation, beyond which he cannot go without force work and affectation. Hence, to exhort a young man to be more animated is to mislead and perhaps spoil him unless you mean to inculcate the cultivation of inward emotion. It is better, therefore, to let nature work, even though for the time the delivery is tame, than to generate a manner only rhetorically and artificially warm, which is hypocrisy." So he's saying, stoke the fires of a man's heart and sooner or later that'll loosen up his hands. But don't just tell him loosen up your hands without dealing with his heart. Otherwise, it's hypocrisy. He's expressing something here which isn't real in here. And isn't that the essence of hypocrisy? Expressing outwardly, deliberately, what is not true inwardly. So Alexander's counsel is very wise. And then... We listen to our old master in Israel, Mr. Spurgeon. Unstudied gestures to which you never turned your thoughts for a moment are the very best, and the highest result of art is to banish art and leave the man as free to be graceful as the gazelle among the mountains that Spurgeon's counsel to us in this whole area and I trust we will lay it to heart. I leave you to consider the Dabney quote at your leisure. So there's the first principle. Aim at ultimately being able to forget myself and to be myself. To be myself and to forget myself. I've had people ask me since I talk with my hands and everything else, is that something you learn? I said no. That's the way I was before I got converted, and the Spirit of God came to indwell me and he took what was there and works with it. I never think, I mean, if I stopped to think, it would drive me nuts uh, because my hands are always going and I don't know what else is going on. But you forget yourself. It's the message that has gripped you and a passion to do others good. It's that which carries you with your message in terms of who you is, not who someone you ain't going to carry you and all that you are by the grace of God and by nature. Now the second principle is this, never premeditate any physical action or consciously force such action while preaching. It is a bad theology of preaching that allows or encourages any man to write in the margin of his notes. Raise right hand here. That's bad theology. Dabney writes as a sound theologian and a sagacious observer of the realities of human nature when he says, quote number 58, There are two expedients of preparation against which I utter my protest. The one is that of going through the action of a discourse before a mirror. Those who practice it claim that it is legitimate. The speaker should use this means to ascertain how his gestures will appear to the audience that he may in time correct what is awkward. He said, I've talked to people who justify it on that basis. I want optimum edification, and therefore if I'm going to engage in a gesture which doesn't move in that direction, I want to strip myself of it. Now Dabney comes with his objection. The objection is that the audience is not there that consequently the speaker does not exactly realize the feelings of the actual preacher in the presence of his hearers and that his gestures will therefore be artificial and false. The moral effect of such preparation is moreover unhealthy. It fosters an unmanly attention to manner rather than to matter. And I'm persuaded that its tendency is to degrade the style of action. The other usage is that of declaiming aloud in solitude the discourse to be delivered. And here again, my objection is that the process is unavoidably artificial. The audience is not present. And the author has not the unaffected emotion which he will feel if his heart is right before God in the actual delivery. The only result of his solitary practice is therefore mischievous. And brethren, the word is not mischievous. Don't put pronounce all your syllables, but don't put extra ones in there. And when I hear men who ought to know better talk about mischievous, no, it's mischievous. That's the proper word, the proper pronunciation. Then he goes on to say, "...the intonations which he so laboriously associates with each particular passage are deficient, heartless, inanimate, or else..." exaggerated and fantastical, and when his soul is really thrown into the current of his discourse in its actual delivery, he will find them, if he is to speak at all well, erroneous and obstructions to be gotten out of the way, if at the critical moment." If he had devoted all his labor to the preparation of his thought and style and left the utterance to the prompting of the moment, together with the guidance of his general preparation, the tones would have been fresher and more appropriate and, of course, the gestures, the physical action would have been more spontaneous and natural. So never, never Premeditate any physical action. I learned this the hard way, not by reading Dabney. I didn't know Dabney existed. I was 19 or 20 years of age. I was preaching in a little mission in the white trash section of Augusta, Georgia, where I was kind of an unofficial pastor while going to college. And I remember, and it reminded me of it, in this past Lord's Day being Easter Sunday. It was Easter Sunday, and I was going to preach a resurrection sermon. And I remember saying to myself, I want to describe the Lord being taken down from the cross, wrapped lovingly by those hands that took him down, placed him in the tomb, and when I came to the resurrection, I was going to both raise my voice and raise my arms. And when I did it, that Sunday morning, I felt as unclean as a man ought to feel when he walks out of a whorehouse. I felt defiled. And I said, God, never again. And to this day, fifty-eight, fifty-six 56 years later, never once, never once have I planned any physical action whatsoever or vocal alterations. God taught me the hard way. I had no mentor over my shoulder, but I had the Holy Ghost within me, the Spirit of Truth, who so reproved me that I said, Lord, forgive me never again. Then the third principle is, Make your primary goal that of purging yourself from all distracting physical actions. God has so made us that we cannot help but feel the impression of men's physical actions as they engage with us in oral communication. But once again, The real activity of Satan and our own indwelling sin will cause us to be distracted from the message if the one proclaiming it has odd, grotesque, or distracting physical actions. If we are driven by the passion to pursue optimum edification, then we will be willing to work at identifying and then purging ourselves from any distracting physical mannerisms and seek continually by the grace of God to keep ourselves free of them. Listen again to Spurgeon addressing this very principle. Quote number 61, it is not so much incumbent upon you to acquire right pulpit action as it is to get rid of that which is wrong. If you could be reduced to motionless dummies, it would be better than being active and even vigorous incarnations of the grotesque as some of our brethren have been. Some men by degrees fall into a suicidal style of preaching and it is a very rare thing indeed to see a man escape when once he has entangled himself in the meshes of an evil mannerism. No one likes to tell them of their queer antics and so they are unaware of them but it is surprising that their wives do not mimic them in private and laugh them out of their awkwardness. (laughs) Spurgeon obviously believed your wife ought not to be intimidated by you as Mr. Sir Oracle, but that she will have the guts where necessary to mimic you in private and laugh you out of your awkwardness. Blessed is the man who has such a wife. I've heard of a brother who in his earlier days was most acceptable, but who afterward dropped far behind in the race because by degrees he fell into bad habits. He spoke with a discordant whine, assumed most singular attitudes, and used such extraordinary mouthings that people could not hear him with pleasure." He developed into a man to be esteemed and honored, but not to be listened to. Excellent Christian men have said that they did not know whether to laugh or to cry when they were hearing him preach. They felt as they must laugh at the bidding of nature... And then they felt they ought to cry from the impulse of grace when they saw so good a preacher utterly ruined by absurd affectations. If you do not care to cultivate proper action, at least be wise enough to steer clear of that which is grotesque or affected. There is a wide range between the fop, curling and perfuming his locks and permitting one's hair to hang in matted masses like the mane of a wild beast." (laughs) Well, he's saying you don't need to appear in the pulpit like a dandy who has spent 50 bucks on having your hair styled or look like a madman who just came out of a cave in Borneo. He said there's a golden mean in our appearance. We should never advise you to practice postures before a mirror nor to imitate great preachers nor to ape fine gentlemen. But there is no need, on the other hand, to be vulgar or absurd. Postures and attitudes are merely a small part of the dress of a discourse, and it is not in man for a that, and so a sermon which is oddly delivered may be a good sermon for all that. But still, as none of you would care to wear a pauper suit if you could procure better raiment, so you should not be so slovenly as to clothe truth, like a mendicant when you might array her as a prince's daughter. So our great concern should be to rid ourselves of the grotesque and the awkward. Some of the most common distracting physical actions are, and here I'm addressing some of you before me, hands in the pockets while you're preaching, or a hand in the pocket. There are some people deeply offended at that. You know how I learned it? Because I deeply offended a man of great stature in the United Kingdom years ago who apparently all he remembered is that brash young American preacher preached with a hand in his pocket. That's the last time I ever preached with a hand in my pocket. I didn't know. I had the habit. I got cured of it real quick. And then I had another habit. I used to button and unbutton my jacket while I preached. And one night, many, many years ago, when I was still in the itinerant ministry, I was preaching away, and my wife, who accompanied accompanied me before we had any children, was sitting on the front row, and I looked at her, and she was going, I said, what's going on? So I got behind the pulpit. I felt for my fly to see if it was zipped. That was fine. I felt for my shirt to see if it were tucked in. That was fine. Then I looked down, and here my jacket had a big fold In the midst of preaching, when I must have had my left hand raised so that the buttonhole matched up with the wrong button, I buttoned it and when it came down, here was the jacket flopping over in this grotesque way. Well, I tell you, I was cured immediately of that grotesque action. So, The point is, brethren, seek to identify and have others help you identify. If it's hands in the pockets, buttoning and unbuttoning, some men fidget with their fingers. They have a habit of tightening their shoulders. One brother, I told him, you look like a vulture sitting on a fence ready to pounce on some roadkill. He just humps over the pulpit like this, and I mean he has the most menacing posture. And I tried to help him. I said, you look like a vulture, (laughs) ready to bounce. Things like that, mannerisms that are distracting, and they neutralize some of the effect of the message. Then there are what we might call incongruent actions, such as pleading with people to come to Christ with clenched fists. Wait a minute. No, 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 no. You don't plead to come with clenched fists. It's open-armed open hands. Spurgeon, in his typical and inimicable way, he addresses this. It will never do to imitate the famous Grecian who cried, "Oh Heaven! with his finger pointing to the earth, nor to describe dying weakness by thumping on the pulpit. Nervous speakers appear to fire at random with their gestures And you may see them wringing their hands while they're dilating on the joys of faith or grasping the side of the pulpit convulsively when they're bidding the believer to hold all earthly things with a loose hand. (laughs) Leave it to Spurgeon. But the incongruous, even when no longer timorous, brethren do not always manage their gestures so as to make them run parallel with their words. Men may seem to be denouncing with descending fists the very persons whom they are endeavoring to comfort. No brother among you, I hope, would be so stupid as to clasp his hands while saying, The gospel is not meant to be confined to a few. Its spirit is generous and expansive. It opens its arms to men of all ranks and nations. It would be an equal solecism if you were to spread forth your arms and say, Brethren, brethren, concentrate your energies. No, your hands don't belong there. They belong here. Concentrate your energies. You do that which speaks of concentration. And then he goes on to say, Gather them up as a commander gathers his troops to the royal standard in the day of battle. Now put the gestures into their proper places and see how diffusion may be expressed by the open arms and concentration by the united hands. Then the fourth and final general guideline is this. Make it your second major goal to rid yourself of inhibitions and reservations which would rob you of having an optimum measure of forcefulness, of physical action appropriate to your own individual personality. That's a long sentence, but I don't know how to reduce it and still say what I want to say. Not only must we try to identify those things that we need to get rid of, but also to analyze ourselves. And if there are inhibitions and reservations that would rob us of having an optimum measure of forcefulness of physical action appropriate to our individual personality, we need by prayer and pains and practice to seek to be rid of those inhibitions. Now, from these more general guidelines, we move on to focus upon specific guidelines for those of us who are more naturally animated. Some of us, by natural temperament, are more intense, volatile, explosive in our personalities. Hence, we are more naturally expressive in our physical actions, in ordinary conversation and in general, verbal exchanges. Like one man said to me years ago, well, if I cut off your hands, it would be like cutting off half your tongue. And he wasn't saying it'd be nasty. He was just observing that my hands are a great part of my tongue. That's the way God put me together. And therefore... I need to face that reality as someone who is more naturally animated and face the peculiar dangers. For us, there are peculiar liabilities and dangers relative to this matter of physical action in preaching. And so I will admonish myself and any of you that are in that category, number one, Remember that your primary function is that of a herald of the truth and a proclaimer of the word, not that of a pantomime artist. The Bible has many exhortations about the lifting up of the voice It has little to say about other physical actions. Now, God, by direct revelation, occasionally told a prophet to do some strange things but you're not a prophet, and he's not telling you to do any strange things. So your strange things need to get purged, especially if you're more naturally animated. Secondly, remember the principle of restraint and self-control as applied to the emotions. Our listeners, those of us more naturally animated, should always have a sense that we are in control. There is more thought than we are expressing in our words. There is more vocal reserve than we are giving out. There is more action in us than we're actually expressing at any point in our sermon except in those rare peaks of highly intensified passion where everything is let out full bore for a very brief time someday i may write a little pamphlet on things i wished to do was strongly inclined to do but never did while i was preaching behind that pulpit there are times without number when everything in me would have wanted to do an old jimmy swagger dance across that platform when my own soul was so suffused with the joy of God's truth that everything in me wanted to do a dance. But I never danced because it would not have been to edification. Not conversely, in addition to that, there's many a time I wanted to come down those stairs and go right to some people in the pews and look them straight in the eye and with tears say, I'm preaching to you. If you don't get it from there, take them by the shoulders, everything in me. The heart would be expanded with a given individual, and you wanted to take them by the shoulders and lovingly plead with them. I never did it. It would have been incongruous. It would have been a physical action, though the motive for it would have been virtuous. And the desire virtuous the action would have been unwise so brethren i urge those of you that are more naturally animated remember that principle of self-control when you're sitting before a more naturally animated preacher and you sense there's a lot more thought a lot more action than he's letting out something in you instinctively respects him and hangs all the more upon his words because you sense he's in control. He's not just let the reins go and let his humanity run wherever it would go, that he's conscious that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. The Spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. Third exhortation to those of us more naturally animated Don't get carried away or involved in any physical action which militates against your being distinctly heard. In a situation where audibility is dependent on a pulpit microphone, you must keep yourself closer to the mic if you're to secure optimum edification by words. Everything in you may want to do a bit of holy wandering But the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So you say, I'd feel good wandering, but that means some people ain't going to hear good. And if they don't hear good, I ain't going to do no good. I'm committed to what? Optimum edification. So I stay glued behind the pulpit until such time as I can persuade the sound people and the video people to get me a lapel mic. But on the other hand, The best thing may be not to get me one. It may be a help to keep me tethered and to keep me from doing the incongruous and the non-edifying. For some of us who do not like to be changed to the pulpit, this situation is uncomfortable, but optimum edification may demand the self-denial of sticking close to the pulpit. Then my fourth word of counsel to the more naturally animated is this don't get carried away into indecorous or ludicrous physical activity. Although one of the general principles, couched somewhat on this matter, touched on it, a special warning is in order to those who are more naturally animated. How can I ever forget one of my dear preacher friends who called me, I think the week after it happened, telling me that when he was preaching on the previous Lord's Day on mortification and how we must hack and how we must hew at our sins, he literally threw his shoulder out of joint in the middle of his preaching. And here he is with his shoulder out of joint. He has to excuse the people while he tries to pop it back in. It was related to an old athletic uh, injury that made him very susceptible. But literally, he took his arm out of its socket and he had to put it back in. Well, he learned the lesson the next time he preached on, if thine eye offend thee, cut it, pluck it out, if thy hand offend thee, cut it off, he's going to be a little bit more restrained with his hatchet, uh, lest he end up with another dislocated shoulder. But then I want to give some specific guidelines for the less naturally animated. Number one, become convinced of the necessity for cultivating some physical activity. You must face the fact that few men have such richness of thought or natural endowment of vocal expression to hold the concentrated attention of a congregation if they are totally passive with respect to physical action. God has blessed his church with such men in the history of the church. But Romans 12.3 says, "...make a sober assessment of yourself." And until it is evident that you have been given by God an ability to express his truth with such refreshing, unique richness, with a voice that captures and holds people, face the fact that if you don't have some physical action in your preaching, it will be difficult for people to hang in there for a 45 or 50 minute sermon. That's reality. You know it's true of you. A man that stands totally passive, has no unusual captivating power in his voice, has ordinary measures of gift to express God's truth. There's no touch of brilliance. He's a good foot soldier preacher of the word of God. But if he has no physical action. It's going to be difficult to hang in there for 45 or 50 minutes. That's just a fact of human nature. Therefore, face the fact, if you are a man of less natural animation and action, that you need to work at this. And what do you do to work at it? Counsel number one, pray for the more complete liberation of your entire redeemed humanity. That's the first step you take. Take such promises as John 8.36 and 2 Corinthians 3.17 and bring them to God. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Lord, somewhere along the line there's some broken circuits. I don't have natural expression with my hands, with my body. Lord Jesus Whatever is there that needs to be set free, set it free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And say, Lord, you liberate me to be the man your grace can make me. Then consciously yield your entire redeemed humanity to the Lord Jesus as his vehicle to convey his truth to men. God wants to employ not just your brain, not just your affections, not just your mouth, your tongue, your teeth, your lips. He wants to employ your hands, your feet, your eyes, your whole redeemed humanity. My dear friend, Ashiel Blaze, I'll never forget the first time I heard him pray this way before he was to preach. And we were praying together. And in that inimitable, rich, Jeffrey Holder-type, West Indian, mellifluous voice, he says, oh, Lord, I give you my eyes. I give you my ears. I give you my hands. I give you my feet. I give you. He went right down through his whole body, yielding it all up to the Lord to be God's instrument through which to bring his word. Perhaps some of you need to do that. Some of you who are listening to these lectures by the DVDs, you may need to do that and present yourself as a living sacrifice unto God to be his instrument to bring his truth with optimum efficiency as you get liberated in this area. Then thirdly, pray for more felt earnestness in preaching. As with the use of the voice, so with respect to physical action in preaching, the primary regulator of both the voice and the hands is the earnest heart. I'm persuaded you could take the most reserved man who naturally very seldom, if ever, gesticulates in ordinary conversation put him in a situation similar to that distraught mother where he's got a son in the burning building. And the firemen are around, and that man will come alive in every fiber of his being when his heart is inflamed with genuine love that longs to see his child rescued. So, if you're one of the less animated not only pray for the more complete liberation of your humanity, consciously yield every bit of it up to God to be his instrument, but pray for more felt earnestness in preaching so that that earnestness will take hold of parts of you that you never knew would be employed in the work of preaching and you may become an amazement to yourself. And McElvain captures this very, very perceptively. And I think I've got time, yes, to just read some of it. From the consideration of these two elements which enter into earnestness in speaking and their relations to the other mental operations and exercises, we shall be better able to appreciate the influence of this source of power upon the delivery." talking about earnestness purging the delivery from the expression of irrelevant thoughts and feelings and gives to the signs, that's physical action, the signs employed, their characteristic excellence. Earnestness equals excellence in physical action. If I may reduce our brother McIlvain. To a mathematical equation. It purges the delivery from the expression of irrelevant thoughts and feelings. And then, number two, on the next page, it gives to the signs employed, whether oral or visible, their characteristic excellence. It gives fullness, strength, and depth to the voice and a certain characteristic quality which makes it seem come not so much from throat or lungs but from the depths of the heart, a quality which is sure to reach the hearts of the audience. And he said then concerning the signs that again it is earnestness which will precipitate and regulate and control them, and make them effectual to those to whom we minister. And then, my fourth word of counsel to the less animated is this. Work at developing animation in congenial, non-ministering situations. Seek to become an abandoned little child when interacting with little children they're never going to say to you, well, that's not the way you are. You be like them, and they think you are one of them. I've been analyzing this afresh in recent days as with marrying uh, Mrs. Chansky, Dorothy, my wife. I've inherited so many grandchildren, and four of them very close, just two and a half miles away, and a lot of interaction with them. I have found that it, keeps alive in me what has been part of my life all my life second oldest of ten I grew up never knowing a time when I didn't have kids around me and uh, all of my nieces and nephews called me Uncle Al the kiddies pel and it's just brought so much of that to life again when they come in the house I become a kid like they are and with that is an absolute freedom to do the most goofy silly things because that's what they like and that's what they relate to. And I never did think, oh, with adults, if I act that silly, will they think, have I gone off my tree, Uh, will they lose respect for me? But with the kids, total abandonment. And I'm sure that that's feeding in to helping me to keep fresh and loose at the joints in terms of my liberty in physical action. Well, Do that with little children. Become a child with them. Almost all the old writers point to children as the great models of the profound natural relationship between the mind, the heart, the tongue, and physical actions and gestures. Then I give, very quickly, some concluding practical guidelines for the attainment of physical action which serves the end of preaching. Number one, Whenever possible, seek to arrange the physical surroundings to allow for action and on animation. I've been in some situations where if I stepped one foot backwards, I would have to sit in a chair that was placed with about not more than two feet from the pulpit. And so you just felt very restricted. And so seek to make sure that you have the physical surroundings of the place where you preach that will allow liberty for action and animation. Secondly, actively seek the judicious evaluation of discerning people in your congregation in the days to come. Discerning people, seek some input from them. Spurgeon comments on the fact that one of the things that was helpful in his college was the students preaching to one another, and they just didn't show any mercy. So if someone had an incongruous physical action, he was sure to be nailed by his peers in the college. And then my third word of counsel is, this very needed, expose yourself to different models. Why is that essential? Well, if you're a real preacher... When you sit before a preacher and you give yourself to the preacher without realizing it, his mannerisms are being programmed into the hard drive of your soul. And you'll find yourself, if you sit under one man for a few times, at least I would. I can remember when I would share preaching conferences with Dick DeWitt, Dr. DeWitt. He would preach, and by the time he was done, I was ready to say, get out of that pulpit, let me go. I mean, it just stirred me up. And then hopefully he felt a little bit of the same when I was preaching, and he would preach. But he had a very unusual gesture where he'd wave this hand almost in a little bit of a feminine way. All the fingers would be closed, and he'd go like this. When I'd finish a conference with him for the next two weeks when I was preaching... I'd find this hand coming up here and I would say to myself, where did that come from? That's not Albert. That's Dr. DeWitt. Now I wasn't consciously saying, I'm going to imitate Dr. DeWitt. That's a very graceful gesture. But it was programmed into the hard drive of my psyche and I had to rid myself of it. And I could tell, other, tell you of other situations, so it's very real. So expose yourself visually to different preachers. Otherwise, without knowing it, you're going to unconsciously imitate in ways that are not you and not natural to you. And then there'll always be people ready to criticize and say, oh, he's imitating so-and-so or so-and-so, when you weren't. This stuff just got into the hard drive of your psyche, and you weren't consciously imitating. You're just a human being, and we are imitative creatures. That's how you learn to talk. Because mom and daddy and siblings around you were talking. And out of that human experience of being imitators, we learned to speak English, Urdu, and all the other ones that he learned in Spanish with our Hispanic brethren here. So brethren, I lay before you these practical counsels that by the grace of God, we will see the privilege of having our entire redeemed humanity, including our physiology, become part of the instrument that God uses to convey his truth to the hearts of men. To what end? His glory, their edification, and their salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we are again so thankful that you have made us human beings. And more than that, that you have called us out of the mass of Adamic humanity, set your love upon us, sent your Son to die for us, sent the Spirit to regenerate us and then to indwell us. And now, Lord, above and beyond all of that, you've marked us out and given us as gifts to your church to preach your word. O Father, we thank you for our high privilege and calling and how we plead with you that we may with renewed determination give all that we are and have, that we may become the best preachers, that prayer and pains and discipline will make us. Seal these things to our hearts, we plead in Jesus' name. Amen.